Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex spiritual, political, and philosophical ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Well, we are still in the series of episodes about esoteric Christianity. And I was thinking that one thing that might surprise people about esoteric Christianity, given what mainstream Christianity is about, (laughs) is esoteric Christianity's emphasis on the individual. And I don't mean the shallow capitalist concept of the individual consumer, but rather the insistence that we are all universes, that we are all containing and contained by and evolving and involving God through Christ, and that our individuation really matters. And individuation, (laughs) it requires, from this view, not an all-oneness, not a we-are-all-one thing, that's New Age, but rather an acute sense of the separation that we all experience. After all, I mean, if you think about the image of Christ on the cross, that is an image of total separation in a way. Christ died and suffered, (laughs) and he's not us, but we strive to meet him. So in other words, you look upon Christ suffering on the cross, you realize that you are not the one experiencing that suffering, but you strive to understand and imagine that suffering because the depth and profundity of the sacrifice is so important. So in that activity of striving, but not exactly reaching, but in striving, that is in proximity to Christ. (laughs) It's as if our efforts, our striving, is a sort of river which Christ stands on the banks of. Okay, maybe that doesn't make sense. Let me put it another way. To acknowledge the existence of others, we must sense our separation from them. So, (laughs) like, if I'm not to just say we're all one or whatever, I have to see that I can't know you. I can't know your experience. I can't live your life or be in your thoughts or feelings or actions, but... I still accept that you're real. I'm, in other words, granting you presence in this world through the act of love. When we commit ourselves or we commit our freedom to the existence of the other, we're admitting that we can't know that they're not just in our heads. It's not just some solipsistic brain in a jar fantasy that nobody exists but me when I'm committing my freedom to the existence of others, I'm admitting that you're there, that you have your own existence. And that is an act of love. And then I'm also admitting that we're all doing that act. We're all committed to that freedom when we admit and understand that others exist, even though we can't be in each other's heads and we can't have each other's experiences or have each other's feelings. So we're all doing that, which means that we're all experiencing separation and aloneness and that we are all together in that. We're unified in spirit. 
And that, it is, in a sense, is the unifying power of Christ's life before, during, and after the crucifixion. And that's something esoteric Christianity really tries to drive home. We can't know Christ's experience, but, and especially in the symbol of the crucifixion, we work to identify with it. And in that movement, we are connected. So there's a kind of profound loneliness there, if you think about it. But the spiritual world gives us many comforts along the way, and one comforter is friendship. And this episode is about friendship, seen from an esoteric lens, and also what happens when all forms of comfort are taken away purposefully. Because we also spend a lot of time in this episode talking about the Holocaust and Nazism. Nazism is the inverse of true Christian esotericism. It's an attempt to destroy the individual, destroy friendship, destroy freedom, destroy love, and even humanity itself. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But first on friendship, I asked the scholar and author Anna Weisse onto the show to discuss this using her book Alfred Bergel, Sketches of a Forgotten Life from Vienna to Auschwitz, as the foundation of our talk. Alfred Bergel was a painter who was murdered in Auschwitz. He was a wonderful artist, actually, um, but his work might be largely disappeared by his murderers. Had Anna and a few others not done the work of reconstructing his presence? I mean, this is one of those really intense moments for me reading this book when I realized how many people's lives are just erased by atrocity, the fullness of their life, because this is a, a pretty extensive book. Um, Anna did this by researching Bergel's life in connection with Karl Koenig. Who is Karl Koenig? Okay, <laughs> so Karl Koenig was the Jewish anthroposophist who started through his guidance and encounters and inspiration from Rudolf Steiner, Camp Hill communities. And now what are Camp Hill communities? Don't worry, we won't get too lost down this track. Let me just give a little more background here. Camp Hill communities are places where people with what many of us would call disabilities live. Um, and they're set up by Karl Koenig and others um, in the mid 20th century. And the idea behind them is that People with disabilities are full people, that they are full human beings, and that they deserve to be treated as such. And when I said before what we might call disabilities, it's because as early as 1924, Rudolf Steiner had already dismantled the misconception that people with disabilities are less than. He said, and remember this is in 1924, <laughs> the only possible grounds we can have for speaking of the normality or abnormality of the child's life of soul, or indeed the life of soul of any human being, is that we have in mind something that is normal in the sense of being average. At present, there really is no other criterion. That is why the conclusions people come to are so very confused. When they have in this way ascertained the existence of abnormality, they begin to do heaven knows what, believing they are thereby helping to get rid of the abnormality, while all the time they are driving out a fragment of genius. 
This is one of many comments like this about this uh, ridiculous idea of normal that seeks to destroy the individual. Uh, from Steiner and then other anthroposophists, Koenig came up with the idea for Campbell communities in 1938. And that was just a year before Hitler had ordered the execution of all people with disabilities. Today, Campbell communities are found around the world. There are actually 15 here in Ireland alone. And it is one of the most beautiful contributions to the world of esoteric Christianity. Now, Alfred Bergel was Karl Koenig's childhood friend into early adulthood. And it is through Koenig's archives that Bergel's life can be reconstructed and revitalized in part. Anna found mentions of him in Koenig's letters and family diaries, in poems and stories. She found other Holocaust survivors and the notes of others who had died in the Holocaust um, speaking about or writing about uh, Bergel as well. And it's this extraordinary friendship between the two that kicks it off, though, and you can see the places where they struggle to meet each other in spiritual vision and artistic vision and the places where they become so bonded and it's really beautiful. And through that, we can see that even though we are separate, that we are separate beings, we can through friendship, through the love that we give and receive from others, uh, begin to contain each other in a way, to hold each other so closely that aspects of ourselves can come to light after we are gone from the people we have touched and the people who love us. We're woven in and out of one another. And in that way, friendship is a reflection or a version of the love that we receive and feel from Christ in this esoteric Christian view. On the journey in Anna's excellent and moving book are instances of others in the camps who are comforted by anthroposophy. Indeed, some of the people in the camps were put there because they were anthroposophists, because Hitler had declared war on anthroposophy, and there was even a special file on anthroposophists, and additionally, resistance groups like Hans and Sophie Scholl's White Rose group were inspired by anthroposophy. And there is, through this work, a revelation about the Nazis' plans to utterly displace reality. So you can see the esoteric Christian and anthroposophical stream of the Camp Hill community taking one path in 1938. Um, but inspired much long, much before that, right? And then there's that other path, that decree of Hitler to kill people with disabilities, taking another. And you can see very clearly this difference there in this these two diverging paths that are just basically a year apart. Hitler's path is to destroy the individual and even humanity completely in favor of the copy or the replica. Let me talk about this a little bit more. Anna discovered that Bergel and other artists in the camps were asked to create forgeries, or asked, <laughs> it's too polite a word, <laughs> the demand was made of them to create forgeries of famous paintings so that the Nazis could buy and sell these forgeries as if they were the real painting. 
it wasn't just to make money. The, the Nazis wanted to feel, they wanted to create a world in which they were just sort of cosmopolitan art dealers. Um, some of these paintings are rumored to be in museums today. The copies are hanging there, supposedly radiating their origin. Uh, the Nazis also asked Bergel and others to paint beautified versions of the violated landscapes that they, the Nazis, had forced into being. So Bergel had to paint these scenes where, you know, uh, things were just made to look more beautiful than the austere and destroyed uh, place that had been created by the war. They also demanded that artists make counterfeit money and of course, Nazis were also trying to make fully copied human beings, a sort of total cloning. You can hear about some of this in my episode with Dan Gretton, which is episode 128 of the show. Um, he wrote this excellent book called I, You, We, Them about death killers, people that kill by policy. Uh, but anyway, the, the way the Nazis turned each other into efficient and brutal cogs who weren't even meant to look at each other, just carry out tasks, to never meet or try to meet one another. So in other words, to be sort of connected in a kind of obliviousness or even an oblivion of the soul. In other words, the mission of evil, and this is true today in other ways, is to displace and replace reality itself to displace and replace reality itself and to repopulate it with soulless copies. No friendship will be possible. No sense of the genuine and free separation that is paired with longing that we overcome with love and freedom. Just a sort of cruel landscape of mannequins and counterfeit. All right, well, I urge you, after you listen to this episode, to buy Anna's beautiful book. It's really fantastic. And I also ask that you support the show. Go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Your contribution is what keeps the show going. Your support is so important to the show's mission, and I try in each episode to truly meet the other person on the show and to offer the conversation to you to inspire conversations and new directions for your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions, your lives. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Contribute as much or as little as you'd like. Okay, that's it. Here's my episode with Anna Weisser. Here we go. Hi, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Anna Weisse. Nice to be here with you. And nice to be here as well. Mm-hmm. Thank so, you for having me here. Of course, of course. Well, so listen, I wanted to maybe start with um, something that's in a story in your book about Alfred Bergerl. And it's this story that Karl Koenig has written called The Revelation of Karma. And it's about how his spiritual investigation and uh, his deepening of his spiritual capacity with anthroposophy has, in a sense, 
seemed to him to have driven him apart from his friend, Alfred Virgil. And I, Mm -hmm. it's such a touching moment because he at once recognizes. So just for people who are, who are listening, haven't read the book yet. So this, you know, this friendship, this deep friendship between these two men, um, as Carl Koenig goes deeper into understanding anthroposophy, Rudolf Steiner, esoteric Christianity, he's finding that that exploration is taking up all his time and, and Alfred Bergel can't join him um, as much as it frustrates him. And so I find this really, really beautiful. So I'm going to just read this part. Again and again, the young man and his friend tried to come together. There was a lack of love and of thought power. And yet there was something holding them together, something invisible, like the force driving them apart. Destiny. And the reason why I start here is because he's marking destiny both as what in some sense drives them apart, but in that driving apart is also containing them and holding them together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think so many of us feel so isolated or alone in some ways in our spiritual pursuit, especially as it deepens. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to start there and maybe ask you about this moment in our lives. Yeah, sure. It's, it's, um, it's a wonderful moment actually to begin with, because this is like a, um, what is the key, key point in their friendship, even though it's ending, it's like a, a middle point. So, you know, um, they were close friends in their youth. Um, they both grew up Jewish um, in, with Jewish faith, even though uh, Karl König um, was a much stronger um, Jewish faith in the family than with Alfred Berger. So they were close friends and they talked about everything, whatever they talked about philosophy, about friendship, about love. So they were the close friends you can imagine. And um, also Alfred Bergel's family was like a, like a substitute family for Karl König. So there was a lot of connection. And um, Alfred Bergel's father was like a second father for Karl König as well. So there's also um, a lot of substance altogether. And um, then Karl König finds anthroposophy and is super excited about that. That's what he has been looking for. This is, he finally feels at home with, with anthroposophy. And um, this new spiritual path um, he was aiming for, even though he did not really know what he was looking for, but he found it. However, he wanted to share that with Alfred Berger and Alfred Berger um, could not go along. So, and even though they stayed connected, their friendship was over at this point. And um, Karl König later on said that he regrets that he was too fanatic, not fanatic is a too strong of a word. Mm. He was too enthusiastic mm. about it and um, couldn't really see um, the others, the, the other the point of view of Alfred Bergo. So they both, um, even though they knew they belonged together, somehow this, they, they are connected. Um, they both, um, you know, went different paths and didn't 
really come together anymore in this life on earth. And um, and 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 Rudolf Stein, um, sorry, Karl König. <laughs> <laughs> Karl König writes in this revelation of karma of this um, few pages of which you uh, read an, um, a quote. He writes that they were not able to separate separate the personal thing from the, he calls it the evil. Um, so, and this is, you know, what we have today. So, and, and Karl König can see it clearly, even then, it was 1925, he wrote that, you know, when they, when their paths separated. So he clearly could see it then. And he was sad about what's happening, but he still wasn't able to um, remedy the situation. And um, this is often what we are in today, in today's society, what everybody's in, that, you know, you can, you're not able to differentiate uh, between um, what the person, the personality of a human being and mm -hmm. what he or she is doing. I wasn't clear about um, um, explaining that. Um, it's, it's, it's important that, you know, some, if you are criticized, for example, like if I'm criticized, um, it's important that I not take it personal, but I take it as a, subs, uh, a crit critique, which uh, has some substance. Mm. So, and this is what they were not able to do, mm. probably um, on both ends, on the receiving end and on the, on the other, on the opposite end. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very funny. So this morning, <laughs> so I've moved into this new house and I woke up with my boyfriend this morning and I was just trying to, I've been trying to sort of give a personality interaction to the new house, right? To sort of, to insole it in a sense. So I do this thing where I'll sing to the house in the morning. And I asked my boyfriend who is not, an anthroposophist by any means he's interested of course but not I said sing with me and he said no I don't feel comfortable doing that and I got a bit upset and I thought why won't you just sing with just sing to the house with me it's no big deal you know but of course and this is reflected in this friendship between Virgil mm -hmm. and Carl Koenig, like you know uh just like why, why can't you just go there with me why can't you just come along but mm -hmm. I suppose there's a way in which because the spiritual path is a, so deeply intertwined with individuation and the individual, it is an alone path. And that to try to pull people on is, you know, taking them out of their freedom, even when it just seems so inconsequential or loving. It's like you're trying to like suck the entire universe into your own universe or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, it's, you know, it's your own path. And, and, you know, I always say if people would have to be, would, would um, write about what is anthroposophy for you? What does anthroposophy mean for you? You would have 20,000, whatever, how many anthroposophists are out there. Mm. You would have so many different answers. Mm. Um, so I think this is super important. And this is, of course, not just for, you know, anthroposophy. It's, it's for everything. Um, so there is not an um, answer, a response, a path, which fits everybody. 
Mm-hmm. And we are on different um, paths in our life and different situations. And um, the important thing is to pick people up where they are and accept, you know, where they are, even mm-hmm. though that's sometimes difficult. Yeah. So, I mean, it brings a, a question up and I thought about mm-hmm. this a lot while reading your book as well. I, there's, you know, there's the true, the spiritual truth that we are unified in spirit. Um, and that we are connected, and yet, I mean, e- e- even so, well, <laughs> that we're unifying sphere, and yet, you know, there's the the personality, the individuality, the way in which that works out through us in an individual way, and so, on the one hand, in our pursuit of this unity and spirit, it requires a confrontation with the personality. On the other hand it requires an honoring of it. And that's such a weird tension. And I'm not always sure how to navigate that, when to give to the personality, what is the personalities want to, you know, move to spirit and and say, well, you know, I want to honor it, but I also want, you know, I, I don't know, maybe the honoring happens in the leaving the aspects of it behind or something. I'm not exactly sure how to describe it. Well, term. you know, I'm also in, um, I always, always, also have this question about um i am more on the side you know i'm totally respecting what the other person is thinking and and i can totally go along with that but sometimes um you know people want to hear about what you're thinking and what your background is and all of that and um i always have the question where what is um, suitable and and this is um you always can just feel it in the situation and the easiest is of course when you're being asked (laughs) Mm. but otherwise um you know i'm i'm rather on the accepting side and i you know everybody has her or his own path and um this is good this is great you know, as long as as you um, respect the freedom of others and and all of that, you know. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, did I respond to your uh, question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe, sure. we'll go, maybe we'll go into it a little <laughs> bit. We'll go into it a little bit more because you've written an entire, you've written this book about someone's life. It's so moving, but this this presentation of someone's life who otherwise, I mean, there's something that just strikes me, and for anybody just read this book is that the 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 sense that this person Alfred Burgo could have been completely lost to 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 us I mean of course lots of people are lost to us because we can't attend to every single person mm-hmm. on earth but but I, more than anything the book evokes the the sort of mourning or the grieving in actually losing a person i mean losing them in such a horrific way of course mm-hmm. um and losing them in a way that is often lumped together six six million died but but, but then you lose sight of each one of those people of course in the face of that horror mm-hmm. but there is then a kind of reconstituting of the spirit, but also the personality in this book. So that's part of why this tension is coming up for me. And you must have, at each turn, I, I'm assuming, felt the intensity of each contour of his personality as you discovered it. Uh, thank you so much for 
paying attention to the book for reading it. Um, this is marvelous because, you know, writing the book, uh, putting together piece by piece, you know, um, is one piece of work um, so that, you know, um, but the other piece of work is the people who read it, who relive it, um, you know? So thank you for doing this. Do you understand me? You Yeah. Did I choose the right words? Okay, sometimes I'm not sure if I choose the right words. No, you words. did. <laughs> so I, I think it's important, you know, it's so wonderful when people do read the book because this is ex ex exactly the problem that his, the goal um, of, you know, of the Nazis was to eradicate his biography, his human being, his humanness, his goals, everything. So, and then there were these, in all his documents were spread, uh, you know, all over the world and archivists collected them, not knowing what it means. This was just some piece of paper of somebody who they didn't know who it was. Mm -hmm. And then somebody, I go and search and look for it. And the amazing thing for me is that from this archival work of these archives in the world, really from Australia, Israel, US, Germany, all over, um, from all these little papers, you can piece together a biography, which is um, so amazing that you can get to know a human being by piecing together um, these, you know, otherwise meaningful and meaningless documents. Um, and tell me that this was the one part I wanted to say, but the tension, tell me about the tension. I didn't really get this question. So I, I got to know the personality of Alfred Dergel through writing the biography. This is clear. Mm. Well, but I suppose, the tension? Yeah, I suppose perhaps to say, because the personality and the individuality, as we were saying before, it does have such importance. But do we worry about sometimes getting, not, not perhaps in this case with Alfred Bergel, but maybe in a more generalized way, worry about getting stuck in the kind of ecstasy of longing to know the personality instead of connecting with the spirit? Now, I don't mean to say that you did this at all, because I didn't sense mm -hmm. that in the book, but I could see this... Mm -hmm this little thing that could happen to people in trying to access biography, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think it's a, a question of the approach. Mm. You know? Um, for me, um, piecing together this biography was a deed for the being of Alfred Berger, mm -hmm. you know? So the most important thing was um, doing this work for him in the spiritual world. I assume he still is there. I don't know. Um, so, and my connection to him comes through Karl König, of course, because I work for the Karl König archive and, and have this deep connection to Karl König and discovered um, Alfred Bergel in his documents and diary entries so and you know and through that I, I'm not sure if you he said about something about that in the intro um, <clears throat> so um, there's this I felt like when I found out that we have documents in the archive in the Karl Koenig archive 
about Alfred Berger. And when I found out that he was murdered in the Holocaust in Auschwitz, I thought we can use these documents to honor mm. him, to um, bring him back into our consciousness, bring him back to light. Mm. And so I think the most important thing is the writing, the, the all the time and all the attention mm. I gave to this being mm. and um and then it has to come to it has come down it, it has to come down to earth it has to become a book mm. but just because it needs to come to earth um and and then when you have this book there is a second deed possible for everybody else who's reading it it's also a deed for mm. this being who was murdered in the holocaust the deed is that you read um, and follow his biography. So I think it's just a matter of of of, uh, of that. Hmm. Do you, do you have a sense? Because I did read, you know, some of the kind of pre articles before the English publication that you. Yeah. There are just a couple of short ones available, but yeah. But the the um, remark you make is something like. Oh, this person just was coming up and who is this, you know, Freddie, you know, like, who is this? Exactly. But the thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, rather than it being an errant detail, in fact, it, it reached you somehow. It, yes. uh, it, it connected with you. Why, why does this happen? Maybe in this instance, but more generally, sometimes Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, everything, everything wants our attention, right? Like you walk through the woods and every pebble, every tree, every <laughs> drop of water, the elemental world calls to us, right? Mm-hmm. And we can stop. It's like the fairy tales where someone picks up a flower and gets, mm-hmm. you know, wakes up a hundred years later or something like mm-hmm. that. So, but this is different, obviously. This is not just that you would get lost in 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 the elements, but rather you were reached out to and, and it's apparent in how much you notice the reaching out. Why, why sometimes does it happen, but also perhaps to reflect on this instance, if you feel uh, it's appropriate. Different reasons possible. One is of course that I was deeply connected to Karl König and um, I was reading his diaries because I did um, I put them into an archival catalog kind of thing. So I was reading every page and writing down the most important words into a a data system. So, you know, (coughs) I think it's the spiritual world, I believe, wants you to to work on something, to know something, Mm -hmm. to do research, ask the questions. Yes, and then, you know, I think if you have done this research, there is a response. So, for example, um, I did the, you know, I did work on Karl König and then I discovered Fredi. And in his diaries, I didn't know who he was because later on he didn't appear anymore in later documents. Mm. So I, and then I Googled and then I Googled his name and then I found out that he died, was murdered in the Holocaust. And um, so there was this, um, immediate wish that I have to honor him to with the documents we have. So there was this, I, I w- would assume these are hard forces, but this is also um, with my connection to Karl König that probably 
um, he was, um, I don't know, he was <laughs> um, present in doing that, but I don't know at all. I myself had this wish to do something about it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very important that um, you cannot sit there passively, if that's the word, um, to in a passive way in order to receive some spiritual um, messages. You have to go onto a path. You have to walk. You have to search. You have to ask the questions. You have to um, go and look. And then you the, the, the life and destiny will give you all these instances that you find out about it. And, and, and for example, um, when the day when the book got into print, the German edition, I got to know that the last day before it really went into the printer, I really, it was already at the publication pump and company for a long time. The last day before it went to printer, I heard that Alfred Bergel's wife had survived. <laughs> so, and I get goosebumps just telling that. <laughs> so, you know, I, there are always this, and there are many, many, many stories like that. I could write a book about how the book was written and how all these instances came about. And this is so marvelous that this happens. And then you also see that you are on a path which is okay, which is right, which is supported, you know? So I went, uh, for example, I looked for um, somebody who knew Alfred Bergel from, uh, from KZ Theresienstadt. Yeah. Because he was teaching there. So he was imprisoned in concentration camp in Theresienstadt, mm -hmm. north of Prague. And he was teaching there um, youngsters and children in mm -hmm. art, history, and, and so on. So the hope was that I would find people who would um, remember him, who would be able to tell me about him. And I put lots and lots and lots and lots of effort in, and I asked archives and so on. And at one point I decided I, that's it now. I couldn't find anybody. But then um, the book already was at the publisher, German publisher still. And, um, and I have to do a sidetrack here. Um, Alfred Bergel was also forced to do copies, counterfeit copies maybe of masterpieces of art. So this was a very, very new topic, which was not discussed in, in Holocaust research at all. So it was not known. That, so, and that was such a new fact that I thought I need to have more info about that in the book. Mm. So even though the book was already ready, I started to do more research. And I asked the archives in the world again, have you heard anything of that? And I listened to lots of um, tapes and so on to find out more about it. However, while I was doing this, looking for more um, proof that, you know, copying of art happened in Theresienstadt, I spoke to one lady and she told me what her mother had done there. So she, and then um, a day later, she told me that she spoke to a friend of hers was also imprisoned in Theresienstadt. And he actually did know Alfred Bergo and could mm -hmm. remember him. Fred Terna, uh, who is still 
who is he's living in, in New York City in Brooklyn and he's a wonderful human being and he became a painter as well. So I was able to meet somebody um, who could remember him. So, but you know, this is just one part of this support um, mm. from the spiritual world through happenings in your life. Yeah, I love I love that you take it this take it in this direction in our conversation because you know I'm thinking as you know, as an esoteric Christian, as an anthroposophist, you know, we would think that a lot of what we would do is attend to the connection between the living and the dead. I mean, even just in recognition of, you know, resurrection and this sort of thing. But, you know, then I, I think like <laughs> as an archivist, as a historian, you know, you are surrounded by <laughs> the works of and the, the kingdom I mean the kingdom of the dead in a certain way mm -hmm. and you're asked to enter into it and come back out mm -hmm. so maybe can you talk about that because the spiritual task of the historian the spiritual task of the archivist I realize it's different for each archivist and historian but but, but perhaps there is a sort of more generalized task there which is I am now seeing as you speak this um, this sort of standing in and coming back out of the kingdom of the dead and the living and this sort of uh, oscillation between the two. Well, I, um, I think that is, it is not a general, there's not a general answer possible because it's mm. just an individual answer possible. So um, I, for some reason, am very interested in, old documents <laughs> and history <laughs> um, you know and for me it's fascinating to see how something came about and history of a place and and so on of institutions how a birth of an institution how it, it grows and how it forms an institution and or um, a nation and so on so for me it's very very individual and it's depending on also on your tasks which um, are inherent in yourself which you just get to know step by step so and you know I also wrote a book about Marianne Brandt who was an, um, an artist of the Bauhaus and I did that very early in my life and I also was the first one to piece together um, documents from archives and write a biography about her. Mm. But I have done that now, so that's done. Um, so um, this is like, it's ended and um, now I'm on further. And I also have the feeling I have done my work on Alfred Berger mm. and I feel very much connected with him, but I also feel like, please people take it up. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so it's out there now, it's, it's yours, you know, please. Please go on and do something with it. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm reminded here, like there's uh, there's a there's an essay which has been really foundational in my thinking and doing this podcast, which is "Theses on the Philosophy of History" by Walter Benjamin. And in there, there's this line, uh, uh, which is I'm going to. It's uh, for the Messiah arrives not merely as the Redeemer. He also arrives as the vanquisher of the Antichrist, the only writer of history with the gift of setting alight the sparks of hope in the past. 
is the one who is convinced of this, that not even the dead will be safe for the enemy if he is victorious. And I, I am thinking of that retrieval and reconstituting that you've done here in the sense of, um, you know, the, the, because the dead, the dead but from the Holocaust, the dead have not been made safe yet from the Holocaust, which has already happened. They're still lost. And in fact, Rudolf Steiner has this thing about cyanide. I don't know if you've read this bit about people who die by cyanide poisoning that this mm-hmm. kind of dispersal happens to them after. But you know, there's um, I'm, there's a big difference to be made, yeah. which is not, um, there are more lectures, there's more material in German available, yeah. which you don't have in English. Okay. Um, so this, he says that for people who kill themselves with yeah. cyanide. Yes. Then this dispersal is happening. Mm of the soul, you know, and in after life uh, and, and after death. Um, but the people in the Holocaust, they did not kill themselves. Right. So, so he's, he's pairing that specifically with suicide is what you're saying, because yes. my question was about the sort of historical work of reconstituting a life. And would that lend itself to healing that dispersal that can happen through cyanide? That was yeah. where, where I was thinking, but but you're it's much better that this didn't happen okay (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) okay Okay. so i um and i wouldn't be able to respond to the other question um but this is um i i had that and another time already um there was a conference in auschwitz where i took part an american conference Mm -hmm. and there was this discussion about that as well and you know because i'm able to have all the German <laughs> literature, you know, available, I could make the, the very important distinguishing um, this, this, what is the word? Yeah, um, difference between yeah. um, killing yourself with it or mm. being killed, mm. you know? And, and this is what I point out also in, in my book, which uh, is important for me, um, that these Jewish people who were killed, killed in the Holocaust they had to overcome so much. Mm. They had to overcome their fears, their angriness, their um, what all the words you can imagine, you know. They knew they would go into death when they go into these gas chambers. Mm. So um, what they t- took along into a life after death is, an, is, is big because they had to overcome so much. Mm. It's, it's, it's a difficult topic to talk about, um, but I clearly think that it makes them stronger. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I've I've reflected, you know, on this this point about the cyanide, and I wonder now that you're saying this about the suicide with cyanide, I I I wonder if that was something perhaps Nazis had hoped to achieve, which is. But failed to achieve, but had hoped to achieve with the use of cyanide, which is well, they also know. killed themselves with it, you know. I see, I yeah. see, yeah, they had their little cyanide capsules, and some of them took them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what their, their way of suicide was. Was that Oof. so? You know, when you brought up the 
Yeah, so we can talk about <laughs> the, the spiritual picture of anthroposophy in, in, in juxtaposition of spiritual picture of, of Nazism, because you bring up this, uh, the art forgery, um, how, so Berger was asked along with other artists in the camps to make forgeries of, of art. And I never, as you said, I mean, of course I had never heard of this if I, <laughs> historians had been sort of lost on it, but it, it really struck me that, that, that the Nazis in this instance, it was almost as if they wanted to utterly displace and replace reality itself in this because they they wanted their fake art so that they could just be art traders that they could buy and sell art as but knowing that they were the copies um so they could enter into the art market and then and then in addition to the copies also the artists were in in the camps were asked to create beautified landscapes um because the 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 Nazis couldn't the people who are making them do that couldn't even really imagine <laughs> beauty in these places. Just, just beautify them for us. They were forcing the victims who still held an artistic beauty within themselves to externalize it and create it and then give it to the Nazis. But it was just this big picture of this like reality displacement almost, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, um, um, I can talk, yeah, it, that's how it was. Um, just one addition to your first remark. Um, it was also for making money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there was, um, there was the other counterfeiting work which happened during the Holocaust was the counterfeiting of money, for example, British money. Mm. You probably know that it happened in what is the word, Mauthausen, I believe. Um, so, and actually one colleague of Alfred Berger had to do that. Um, so it was also for making money. And there, you know, it's, it's um, there was, there were two art workshops in, in Theresienstadt. There was the big one where lots of this work happened and there was a small one. And the small one is called Sonderwerkstatt, so special workshop, you would translate it. Uh, I'm not sure how I translated it in the book. So this, um, and the smaller one was directly under the leadership of the Theresians, of the Nazis there, of the leadership of the uh, camp. So, and they had to do different tasks. They had to copy masterpieces of art, and they also most probably had to forge art. So there are different things when you copy something and it's still, you know, it's still clearly a copy, that's okay. But if it's um, not visible, that's not clearly a, um, a copy, but you know, then it's counterfeiting, it's forgery. And there are several people I asked um, who were there, who said, yes, that, that's what's happened. Mm -hmm happened there. And um, this is lots of research uh, has to be done in this area. Very lots of research has, to, a lot of research has to happen in this area because this hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. And there is this, this crazy story about this, um, this one forger who forged himself, this Elma de Hori, did you read this? Which part is this? Remind me. Elmar El de Hori. He was he was a, a famous forger. 
he was counterfeiting art. Um, and I think it's it's just um, commentary. It's maybe it's in the book. Um, I, I did a, a name, so it must be coming up. So, however, he said, um, but it's hard to to really take him as a truth teller because he was forging himself <laughs> later on, you know. Uh-huh. So, but he said this is not being researched because these paintings hanging are hanging in museums and libraries. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, and um, uh-huh. and he would say, look, this and this and this painting is as a counterfeited painting. So, um, but you know, this is speculation. I don't know. I my I just put in the book mm. about this topic what I knew mm. and what I could find out. I hope people take it up and do more research in that regard mm. because it's super important that this is happening. Yeah, well, I, it just gives such a it's such a counter picture. So, so anthroposophy presents such a counter picture to all of this in a way. So. When I was thinking about the two next to each other, thinking about threefolding, Campill, biodynamic farming, Christian community, Waldorf, anthroposophical medicine, all of these guarantee, in a sense, like when, when really engaged with, that counterfeiting becomes completely impossible or unavailable. Like no copy can be made when these, because they all encourage the expression of reality through individuation and through freedom and copy can't be made through freedom it's it's -hmm. impossible whereas so i was just thinking about and and the nazis were also trying to make people into copies of each other obviously one through the numbering as you quote Mm -hmm. in the book this uh this horrible (laughs) phrase that reflected someone's truth that the that the number hung from their neck like a cow um, yeah. some in the, the camps but then also um the the nazis themselves made to conduct tasks without looking at what their neighbors were doing these sort of micro tasks just to do and do mm-hmm. quote unquote perfectly without mm-hmm. looking over to just carry out a function and mm-hmm. so everybody acting in this machinic kind of way it's the exact opposite of anthroposophy in its way, you know, or so that maybe not the exact opposite. That's too. That's too. It's clean. the opposite of of humanity. It's the opposite of humanness. Yes. It's you know, it's the opposite of a human because humans we are there to have social interaction. We are there to be able to express ourselves and so on. You know, we are there to have a name which is given to us by our parents. Mm-hmm. We are there to have hair, which expresses somehow ourselves as well, you know, and the Nazis, of course, um, shaved the heads, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. So they they took away the individuality, the humanness of these people in the concentration camps. And, and, and this book is one step to, you know, take it out and bring a human back to life in a way as much as I can do it with a book mm. of course you know yeah did it was that where you wanted to go or did you yeah. want to go somewhere else well, well I think maybe just take it take it a little more down the road which is just to say that I think that the anthroposophical impulse is is just is the impulse of the encouraging of the human of the human freedom and and mm-hmm. human expression 
you know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking even, uh, I didn't realize it was in 1938 that Karl Koenig developed the curative education idea, right? I believe it was 1938. And then the next year was when Hitler declared the extermination of people with disabilities. So you can see these two right next to each other there. And there's just this, I mean, the, the intense, the intensity of that period of time is you can see these diverging paths, this one that is available to us and the one that the Nazis mm-hmm. were, were taking. Yeah. yeah, it was, all, and it was also when the Nazis uh, went into, you know, annexed Vienna and Austria. Mm. So when Germany took over Austria and suddenly from one day to the other, other in March 19. 38, they were, they lost their jobs, they had to leave the country, they were imprisoned, and so on. And that was the moment when Karl Koenig and his friends, who had worked with uh, books by Rudolf Steiner and to try to study his works, they decided to, they wanted to do something, some curative work together. Mm-hmm. And it's quite, um, it's quite what is the word, mutig? Um, it's quite, I just don't get the English word right now. It's quite something that they decided to do that while they all had to flee Austria. Mm. So they were all, almost all of them were Jewish and they all had to flee Austria in one way or the other. And some, some flight paths are very dangerous even. And um but somehow it was able, they were able to come together again in Scotland through the deeds of many people. Mm. They were able to meet again in Scotland and do this work. Mm. So, um, and yes, it is probably connected to, you know, the, the later uh, law which came about in Germany, but it's more this. Um, you know, it was there from 1933 onwards, you know, it was seen that this would go this path. But of course, it's also wonderful that this comes together at one moment in time. Yeah, and, and you can see taking up the words of Rudolf Steiner, I, you will know the words better than I, but just the mm. when, when, when Steiner was saying, you know, you call people with disabilities idiots and that leaves a mark on your soul. They're mm-hmm. whole people, you know. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that also obviously predates the, the Nazi activity, but stands in complete stark contrast to it. Yeah. And and what um, what Karl Koenig did with uh, founding, you know, Karl Koenig and his friends, of course, not him by himself. Mm-hmm. Um, what he did with founding Camp Hill, at that time, it was a very new concept for sure. You know, in 1939, 1940. Um, now there are lots of wonderful possibilities there for uh, people with special needs. Um, but at that time, it was very precious to do that, um, to say that these people, um, they, they are just physically or mentally a bit disabled, but they are, you know, spiritual beings like we are as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't, I also didn't realize that until I read your book that, that Koenig had specifically tailored Camp Hill to be located in Ireland, where I am, but it was rejected. (laughs) But now there are, there are 15 Camp Hill communities here, which is a lot for a tiny little 
island. So somehow it managed to find its way here and, and flourish anyway. Do you know how it made its way into Ireland after that initial rejection? In Northern Ireland was the first one, Glen Craig, hmm. uh, near Belfast. Okay. That was the first one. And it was actually by invitation. So he was asked to come there. Mm. And was it was like a big celebration and all the dignitaries came for the opening. It wasn't a small thing. It was a really big, big event where the, the, I believe the, um, what is it called? The, the mayor came, or, no, <coughs> it was a big celebration. So mm. it was Glen Craig in, in, in near Belfast. So Northern Ireland, not really Ireland, mm. but you know, on the island of Ireland. Ireland, Ireland seeking, seeking itself again, I suppose. Yeah, it is amazing, actually. And it was wonderful for Karl Koenig to see how he, how he was welcomed in Ireland. Mm. So it's also different, you know, Campbell, how it was founded in different countries. There's a very different path. Mm. Um, whoever was there, you know, to be the initiator and so on. And in some countries, it didn't happen even though there were initiatives. And so Ireland was a very joyful, big celebration. Mm. Yeah, in fact, it's just, I, I love how it found its way here. I mean, it's a, anthroposophy in Ireland have such a strange, <laughs> strange relationship. You know, um, there are very few, for people interested, I mean, there, there, there's some lectures about Ireland from Rudolf Steiner, but they're very, I mean, it, they may not be where to begin with if you're just starting your journey because they have this, you know, quality where he says, oh, well, Ireland is protected in some ways. And in various ways, he says it's a bit protected. And yet from, from some adverse spiritual forces and, and yet it's also, there's not a lot of visible sort of, you know, uh, how should I say, explicit anthroposophy here that you see. There, there, there is, but it's not like other places in Europe, you know, where you see it kind of everywhere. It's very interesting. You mean explicit in, in what, like, archi- um, like lots of performances or architectural or yeah, I mean, I, I happenings? Just, it's that, yes. I mean, you, there are the Camp Hill communities and there's lots of them. And there are a few Steiner schools, but... It, it wouldn't feel, I would say, like, you know, certainly Germany, Austria, Norway, you know, certain other, even, even the UK um, or certain places in the US where you can feel a little bit more of the mm-hmm. sort of pulse of it. You, it. It sort of has to be discovered here by someone who's looking pretty hard, even, even though there's lots of it, if you're not in it, Mm -hmm. you you wouldn't discover Mm -hmm. it. And it's Rudolf Steiner's name isn't on people's lips here, you know, in the same way. Mm -hmm. I've been moving here from the U S you know, there are plenty of places in the U S where no one would even know who that, who Rudolf Steiner was at all. And you can get that feeling in Dublin. Really. Mm -hmm. I have to say Rudolf Steiner and then give the quick biography every time, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's very interesting the way it's, found but not yeah. found its presence here mm-hmm. yeah. well i just read i you know first of all i think how anthroposophy finds its way in countries is different mm. depending on the people who live there mm. and um 
And I just read an article uh, by Sergei Prokofiev last night about how um, anthroposophy lives differently in the northern countries, in Germany, mm-hmm. in, in the Baltic countries, and so on. And that was super interesting. So in, in Karl Koenig, uh, Rudolf Steiner says that in the northern countries, anthroposophy is um, folks, it arrives just as, um, you know, it's, it's Volkshaft. So it means it's a German word, and I don't know the English one. Um, it's just part of the everyday life. Uh, uh, it's just very um, integrated. Mm. And that's how I realize it there as well. So, and he says in Germany, for example, um, so anthroposophy, anthroposophy is more of a factor, it's not the real, the effect of cultural life. Mm. So it's not becoming so much. Um, um, a part of everyday life that's in everybody's, you know, and, 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 and I was in Norway, Norway, and um, this is clearly there, just very integrated in everything. So, and I've never been to Ireland, so I cannot say anything to it. Um, but the only thing I can say is, is that it lives different in different uh-huh. um, countries. Well, you would ex- this is the imp- this is would be the interesting thing to uh, discover, you know, concerning Ireland. How how is it? How is it? Why is it different? Mm. And I- maybe there is some German literature, you know, to which you don't have access to. There is this wonderful book actually by Jakob Streit about Ireland. I just um, there is a book about Ireland, in German. Oh, please translate it today (laughs) (laughs) um it's it's about you know you know that in ireland the esoteric christianity lived so strongly Mm. and um you see it in all these celtic crosses and and so on in the druids who were there in, in 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 ireland and how they were able to perceive christ christ and christianity and there was this this very normal going, um, what is the word? Uh, the, the transition from um, pre-Christian to a Christian mm. life. Myster- mysteries, I should say, mysteries. Mm. Um, so, you know, this lives in Ireland as well. So they have this foundation of an esoteric Christianity which probably is not so much alive anymore. But this is a lot what Ireland has, which other countries don't. Mm. Yeah, it's so so interesting that you bring that up because on the one hand, there is that, yes, that deep tradition of esoteric Christianity. And then Catholicism, though I, I won't bash the Catholic Church here. It's, it's come up enough on the show, but it, but it does create an an obfuscating, obscuring force in some ways to some of the esoteric Christianity. But one of the things that still has its thread here is also a connection to the elemental kingdom. So maybe not in Dublin so much, although even here, you know, I have a friend who's pretty much just secular humanist, you know, we're walking Mm -hmm. through the park 
and she 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 grabs me and says don't step there because there's a ring of mushrooms you know it's so still in her mm-hmm. even though she has no spiritual belief system knowing mm-hmm. doesn't want me to walk through the mushroom ring and i think mm-hmm. that thread that has not let the, the the presence of the elemental beings die and that the esoteric christian past is here and that christianity in its in a ritual form through catholicism has permeated cultural life here it's all very there is this strange blend here as you as you say I, I yeah yeah and it's it's you know and then just put this all out there you know all these different foundations and what you hear about Ireland and you know of course the the the, the knowledge of, about um, an elemental world is present there as an Iceland as we know uh-huh you know, Iceland is very strong with that, but Ireland as well. So there is um, a closeness um, to the spiritual world, mm. which is not so much in other countries. Mm. So um, that's what, where I wanted to go, you know. It, it just lives different in different countries. And, um, and one has to discover that. So, yeah. So... So I think maybe we'll end here I, on on one last point, which I am interested in this thing that Carl Koenig says about, which is about going beyond blood relationships, mm-hmm. um, which is this quote, um, you know, the social experience, the social experiment of the village impulse, this little seed of the threefold social order may gradually grow and spread healing into the illness of our time. And this is something that's been expressed in many ways in regards to uh, anthroposophy. When a child goes to a Waldorf school, it can have a healing effect on the family. When an initiate lives in a town, it can have a healing effect on the town. This idea that the actions, the initiatives, the social experiment, the village impulse, these things, they can actually radiate a kind of healing from where they're placed or organized. And so I just wanted to offer that because there's so much, um, and, and, and let you talk about it for a moment, because there's so much question about what can I do in this world? What what can I offer in the face of world karma and all the things that are happening that seem so large, but actually in some sense, if you place yourself or you or two or more gather and place yourselves um, in, in sort of the right positions of spirit, it actually does radiate. So the self-work does have a very effective, potent presence. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. Um, so if you yourself do um, honest work, honest, live your life in a way that is true um, to your own conscience, um, if you do deeds which you feel um, which I obviously, I can look into the, my own eyes, you know, which um, this is an, a German impression. So I have to be able to look into my own eyes and I'm okay with that. Mm. So <clears throat> I believe that um, we all have our paths. We have to work, we have to own our money. So we have to be 
present in the practical everyday life and do our work there, whatever it is. But in that, we can do a lot just with our colleagues or with somebody in the tram or, you know, so we have this, we have this German artist, his name is Josef Beuys, and he says the mysteries are at the train station. So it's, <laughs> so it's not a separated something. It's not an ashram or whatever. It's us as human beings in everyday life, in, in the town, wherever, you know, farming land, wherever you find your, your good in, whatever you find you have something to give, um, something to contribute, and where you think you can express yourself as well. It all depends, you know. Um, so I lost, I lost your question. <laughs> no, that's it. That's it. There was no question. It was just asking you to speak about that a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm totally for what uh, Josef Boy says about them at the mysteries are at the train station. So you can do something when you, that in the, in the moment when you smile to another person being, uh, another human being waiting at the train station or so, for example, you know? And that could mean so much for whatever reason, you know? So I'm glad I put a note outside on my door because somebody is vacuum cleaning. Can you hear it? <laughs> <No>, <laughs> <laughs> so she just wanted to get in and saw the note, note and then she backed off. <laughs> um, all right, well, Anna Weiser, thank you so much for uh, talking with me and for writing this amazing book and for doing what you do. Thank you. Well, thank you for, um, for reading the book and talking to me. So it was interesting to hear your questions for sure. <laughs> thank you. And everybody, thank you so much for listening. Bye now. Bye.